right, thing here. Ready? Watch this. We're live, everybody. Welcome in. I'm here with Emit, who's too legit. Okay. It is. Oh my. What? What's today? Wednesday. <laughs> Wednesday. So <laughs> June twenty eighth. Uh, two p.m. Central, three p.m. Eastern, twelve p.m. Pacific. Amit, how you doing, brother? I'm doing great. I got to be here for the honorary arm stretched out. We're live, everybody. I love it. I got it's it. The Farzad special. So you can see the arms. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. That's awesome, man. Well, I appreciate you making the time to jump on. Um, producer wife is is off today. We have family in town, so it's just going to be Amit and I. And uh, hopefully, as per usual, for the last few live streams, I'll try not to turn this into a complete train wreck. So. Uh, I'll try my best here to uh, be both a host and a producer. So, Emmet, uh, you know we've chat, we've chatted before multiple times on your channel. Very grateful for for being on yours, and, and I'm very happy that you're finally on mine. I've been looking forward to this conversation. One of the things that I really admire about you is that you cannot seem to stop pursuing your passions, and that is super inspiring. And so, my first question is, how the hell? Do you do that? How, how are you so gone ho about this stuff? Where was that learned? Is that something that has happened recently? What what's what's going on? Why why can't you stop? That's that's, a, that's an interesting first question. Thank you for having me on, Farzad. This is super awesome. Um, yeah, I guess you know this idea. I guess you bring up is is more a philosophical question about like the idea of chasing ambitions and dreams. And I don't know. I mean, when I was you and me have talked about this before, but when I was in high school, it seemed like everyone that I went to business school with was obsessed with like getting an internship at JP Morgan or Goldman Sachs or Amazon or something like that. And for me, I was just like, if you get an internship and you work there, that's going to be fine. But like, are you really going to like what you do? Are you going to care about it? Is there going to be any purpose or meaning? And so at, at some point, sophomore year of college, I started really thinking about death a lot more. And uh, it was I was remember I was watching the cosmos on Netflix and Neil deGrasse Tyson in his very seducing voice was just like, in 4 billion years, the sun will die out and then earth will be no more. Cause like there's no oxygen, so the plants won't be able to, I'm just like, wait a second. So the, uh, and, and he was like, this is a scientific fact. The sun will go away, there will be no earth. And that's when it clicked to me. I was like, wait a second. So if there's not gonna be an earth one day and there's and I'm not gonna be here one day, then like, what's the point of even doing anything, right? You kind of get into this nihilistic nature of, of, of trying to figure out what's the purpose of your life. And you know, most people go through this in their early twenties. And then you start to realize, well, the only purpose in life is to make my own life purposeful the way I decide I want my life to be. And then you just go to pursue. And what it does is it creates this freedom because they're like, all right, if there's nothing to lose, there's everything to gain. No matter what happens, at least I've tried. And that's underlying philosophy has been there for the past five years. And then it's discipline. Like then it's then it's like, no, you have to post these videos if you want to grow. You have to keep, you know, creating content. You have to keep pushing yourself to the limits. So that discipline mixed with that overarching abstract idea of like nothing matters, therefore everything matters is why I guess I'm here today. Damn. So so you're very much you you've thought about this, it sounds like, because that's that's a very deep philosophical answer. How how do you navigate the days where you know like you know you're an entrepreneur you, you do a lot of stuff um you have audio going on you got your youtube channel i know you do trading you're just you're just a dude you know you've raised uh like hundreds of thousands of dollars right raised about your... 300k for my startup yep that's incredible and how old are you Amit? uh 25. yeah insane super impressive right so you're you're a very impressive individual but uh, as you know entrepreneurship is super difficult and there are uh, the road is not straight and it's very often not up. <laughs> yeah. Nice. So how, how do you navigate those down days? Like what, what, what's some advice you can give people? You know, so the first time I ever, uh, tried to do something fun with the opposite sex, 
uh, as you said, things don't always go up. And <laughs> some days, that was good. <laughs> some days you're just like, well, this is going to work. This is going to be amazing. Uh, I made sure my parents aren't home. I made sure it's a, it's a, that's off from school. I know where to pick her up when she gets here. And then, you know, things should go as planned. And then things don't go up. And then you're sitting there just like, wow, this did not go how it was planned. But sometimes if you're charismatic enough, she gives you a second chance. And I think like in the context of getting a second chance on the down days, which I've had a lot of them, um, you pick yourself back up. You know, no, it's interesting you asked this question because there is a paradox I'm going through right now. On YouTube, I kind of know how to grow. I understand the the, the mechanisms. Uh, I understand, you know, what content I have to create, all this stuff. And it took years of figuring. People don't realize I started YouTube in 2011. I was inspired by MKBHD. I started a unboxing channel. I was unboxing Kit Kats. And like my mom bought a MacBook just so I could unbox it. I mean, that's why like my mom's my greatest superhero. Like literally she wanted to just keep me awesome. pursuing content. But that channel failed, obviously, 2011. I didn't know what I was doing, all that stuff. And then finally, I, I got it. I was, I'm a stock market junkie for the past 10 years, not 10 years, the past four or five years. And so I got so into it, I was like, let me start making content. And then I kind of find my niche. So YouTube, I understand a little bit. With the startup, it's so interesting because I've been able to get from um, MVP out into the world, make the MVP really decent, which I think with the product is 10x over the past couple of uh, months, and then raise money for it, which are like the two things you need to do when you're building a new product. You got you to get the product out there in the world, show that it has some chance to succeed. And then you got to prove to investors that there's a story and there's a product and there's a mission that they're willing to invest in. Then you have to grow it. And growth over the past 10 months has been really difficult because I've gone through every single obstacle you can imagine as a startup. So I'm, I'm managing this paradox of like YouTube, I understand how to grow and, and there's a way to get there. Whereas a startup, it's the wild, wild west and you've got so far, but now to get to the next level, you've really got to go zero to one, right? You raise the money, you got the product now, can you really take it to the next level? And so it's it's just that that idea of like never stopping as cliche as that sounds and, and hopefully you get a second chance to, to bring it up the next day. Yeah, and so... Like how, how big of a challenge is it? So you talk about that paradox. You, you have your YouTube channel that you, you're clearly very good at. You're successful at it. You're growing. I, I continue seeing more and more of your videos on my, on my just home screen naturally. And I see more and more views happening there. So is there, any, is there ever a point where you're like, okay, like, and, and Audia is, a, is an awesome product. And I encourage everybody to go check it out. Audia.io, you can see it right there behind the mitt. My content is there as well. It's basically disrupting uh, 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 audio-only content so that it's very easy to discover very valuable content. So, But but you're, you, you know there's challenges there and you got your YouTube channel going. And do, are you ever like, why am I doing this Audia thing when I know I can get YouTube to where it needs to be? Like, do, it, does it, that ever cross your mind? It, it's vice versa. It's not It's not even just Audi. Oh. It's, it's YouTube. It's Because it's like, I guess for me, I, I've always tried to pursue multiple things. And, you know, it's not even just the Audi YouTube. I have a, like, I have another website called dailypoundtier.com. I'm running that. It's like, there's just a trillion different things you're doing. To me, I feel like that is my superpower. I know some people think of it as a kryptonite, but I think I have to be doing multiple things. Uh, because if I'm only locked in on one thing, some people think that's extreme focus. For me, it doesn't really create the level of focus I need versus having multiple different things, especially in the context of all those different things impacting each other. So YouTube has been a blessing for Audia. It, it allowed me to build a community, reach an audience, raise money. A lot of the initial users, a lot of the initial creators on the platform came from YouTube. So to me, I see YouTube as this asset, and same thing with Twitter, that can never stop growing. Uh, because you got to just keep that growing because if there's a funnel and people are coming in, 
they have a chance to care about the other stuff you're building. Audia to me is like my my lottery ticket of like, if I really figure this shit out, this is going to be, you know, one of the coolest things in the world. Um, mm. So yeah, there are days where I'm just like, man, I really got to do this live stream and I want to spend some time here. And then there's other days where it's like, man, I don't want to do this thing here. I got to do some other stuff. But I think it balances itself out because I know that each of them lead off of each other. And, and on a philosophical level, I kind of don't only want to be a content creator for the rest of my life. I kind of want to build something. I think all content creators go through this at one point. They're like, hey, I want to launch something of my own, not just be beholden to YouTube or Twitter. And so, you know, that that philosophy has been with me for a very long time. The paradox is you have to use those platforms because they're they have monopolies on attention to be able to get any attention on your own thing. And so all in all, I think it bounces itself out and I keep going. But yeah, there are definitely some days where they conflict and it's just like, all right, what do I do today? How many, so how many hours would you say a day do you, do you put towards your work? Like, is it just every waking hour? I wouldn't say every waking hour. I say three hours are spent on YouTube. That's because I do two live streams a day, one at night, one in the, in the morning. So that's two hours and then one hour making videos. My videos kind of like you are actually really simple. We just get to talk. We don't have to do Mr. Beast style fucking crazy yeah. editing and shit. So <laughs> we just get to talk and we get to put it out there. And thankfully people's attention spans are not corrupted enough by TikTok where they can listen and watch <laughs> someone talk. So three hours on YouTube and then um, you know, I sleep at like maybe 1, 2 a.m. So you got next nine, 10 hours on Audia. Like I was just in a meeting right before I got onto this for Audia. And so people don't really see that because, you know, they see me kind of right. tweeting all the time. A lot of times tweets, it's like, you know, it just takes two seconds to tweet and then you just go on your day and then you come back to it later. Right. So, yeah, I would say about 10, 12 hours a day, three hours on YouTube, the rest on Audia and um, just keep going from there. Yeah. And, and do you feel like, do you do anything from like an exercise perspective? Do you do anything like how walk me through that routine? Like how do you keep your energy level so high? Yeah. So, okay. So the energy level question is important. And then I'll, then I'll talk about exercise. I do a, a morning open live stream every morning at a uh, nine 20 AM. I was inspired by me, Kevin to do that. And I think it was really cool. Cause it's like, you just get up and you have to start analyzing markets. You have to start talking. So no matter how I feel in the morning, and there's some days where it's just, it, it sucks. You just didn't, don't feel the best in the morning. That thing forces me to uh, be grateful, to be energetic, to be excited, and to really have fun with the day. Because, you know, now we're getting to the point where about five, 600 people are coming there in the morning. And I was there when there was 80, you know, people a year ago. So to see that growth over the past year, and it's like these 600 people all across the world, and I know you must feel this is like a surreal feeling sometimes, they're here to listen to me, little old me, talk about Tesla or talk about stocks or all this stuff. And it's like the, 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 the gratitude that, that creates, the humbling that that creates to give them a good show, not a BS on your analysis, which means you have to wake up a little early and read some articles, try to understand what's actually going on and then make it fun. Because I think this, a, a big thing of content is just energy. And like, I figured this out a couple months ago, which is like, yo, if I'm more energetic, the audience will be more excited. People will mm -hmm. care more. You know, breaking news, uh, Volvo's adopting the NACS standard. I need to make this video and I need to act as if I really care. It, it, it matters if you do care, which if you really do care and then you act as if you care, there's this yeah. just perfect synergy where people are like, next time Farzad or Mitt posts a video, I'm going to click on it because I like that energy. The, the paradox of that is creator burnout because we can't always manufacture excitement. But if you're able to do it enough and able to build enough of a community, then that's super awesome. So that gets me up in the morning, gets me super excited and gets me ready to go. Um, in terms of working out, 2022, I let myself go. I think I gained about 30 pounds because I was raising money for Aldea. So I was up till 4 a.m. literally taking meetings with people across the world. You know, I would justify drinking two Cokes a day because I'm like working. I flipped that mindset. I haven't been perfect. Um, I, eating wise, I think I've been really good working out wise. I've not been really good, but over the past month, I've been starting to work out a lot more, run about five miles a day, try to do about 50 pull-ups and then a hundred nice. push-ups, And then hopefully by August, we can uh, lose some more weight and keep it going.
Nice, man. Yeah, thank you for walking me through that. Because the one thing that always stands out to me about your content is like, man, you always bring it. You're always bringing it and you're always engaged and the energy is always high. And I'm like, you know, I've been doing this for about, what, a year and a half now-ish, this YouTube thing. And I think, and it's it goes in waves, you know. I think that the big thing that I've learned is that if you're passionate about what you do, the energy comes through so much easier because yeah. you're just naturally very uh, excited to talk about it because you're like, oh my God, I can't wait to share this with the world, right? Yeah. And um, and that's the and I'm almost like have allowed that for me specifically to be the guiding light into what kind of content I want to create. And then what what I found recently, and and this is I'm working through this in my head, and I and I and I'm. And I want to talk about this openly because I'm I'm big on like you know just allowing people to kind of see my the, how I'm thinking about stuff is my my interests and passions are like going into multiple directions and I'm like okay so at, you know as a quote unquote creator do I bring everybody along with me on that ride mm. or do I sort of keep this to just a thing that serve the algorithm are? how do you battle that I would love to pick your brain on that. That's a great question. That is, I mean, I think this is the, I, so, okay. So let, let me take this here. I think this is the greatest internal conflict a creator will have over the next decade because, and, and this kind of goes into the thesis of my startup. There are five platforms, TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter that control people's attention, it, at least democratize attention. Obviously Netflix is big, Hulu is big, but in terms of people wanting to get an idea out into the world, real estate agent, lawyer, Tesla podcaster, you know, whatever you are, you've got to use these platforms to leverage attention. Well, so, so if there's five platforms with 5 billion people congregating on these platforms, that means those platforms have a monopoly on attention, which means, A, the upside is, holy crap, I can post a tweet and 100,000 people can see it. But the other problem is, well, Twitter is getting 5,000 tweets. I think Elon said this in, in the latest blog that they updated a second, which means if they have 5,000 tweets a second, how can they possibly care about showing your uh, tweet about you jogging for five miles this morning? To, to, to random strangers that have no affiliation with you. So the only way Twitter and uh, YouTube can, can uh, you know, show your content to people that would actually click on it, which is the only value of the content, right? Because if people don't click, it's just dead space on their servers, is if they can filter it through an algorithm. So I think the reason your channel, and your channel has actually inspired me a lot. I've been meaning to tell you this. I was doing, I was blabbering out content about stocks, I think for the past year. Over the past two months, I, I took a deep look at your channel. I was like, a, how is Farzad growing? And B, as Farzad having fun with his content. I think you're definitely having fun with the content because I'm seeing the videos and I'm seeing the energy. And then B, you're growing. And so from a creator perspective, I'm like, well, he's growing because he's talking about the one thing he knows how to talk about. And inside of that one thing, which is obviously Tesla, there's a myriad of different topics. Obviously, you got Elon Musk. Then you've got Twitter. Well, that's a free speech debate. And that's more philosophical. That doesn't have to do with Tesla, but it by proxy has to do with Tesla because if Twitter fails, you know, Tesla's in trouble. Yeah. So there's a discussion there. Then you've got cyber trucks, then you've got EVs, then you've got energy. You can talk about the entire world of energy. And if you just kind of relate it back to Tesla, people will care, but they'll also stay for the other analysis. So your model of growth to me has been phenomenal because you take one underlying topic and then attach it to a crap ton of stuff. I don't talk about Tesla as much. I talk about Palantir. So my question two months ago is, can I attach Palantir to a lot of different topics so I at least get the freedom as a creator to not be killed by the algorithm and at least talk about some other things I want to talk about instead of having a video just do horrible if I, if I try to create it and it's a little bit off topic. And that's the creativity that I've tried to figure out, which is I can talk about this one underlying thing. Palantir relates to a trillion different topics. And if I'm creative enough to connect those topics to Palantir, then I have 
uh, a video or, or pieces of content to make. Again, it's, it's, it's really exciting to do that. But if there's only five platforms, I can't blame those platforms for basically dogging your Metallica video of you playing the guitar <laughs> because they're like, look, you know, Farzad, we know he he's in this part of the algorithm. If we try to show him to these people and they don't click, YouTube's going to lose money because every impression that people don't click on the video, that's bad for YouTube. So it's a really complicated challenge. And I think more platforms are going to be needed to solve this challenge over the next decade. But um, it is complicated. And the best way I think you can do is pick one thing and attach it to a bunch of other topics. Yeah, it's interesting you said that. By the way, thank you for the kind words, and you know, likewise to you, I, I I definitely see what you're doing too, and it's it's it is inspiring for me too. I think I think the the interesting thing about what you just discussed is sort of this natural synergy or sort of uh, topics that are part of this broader Tesla Elon Musk story yep. because it's becoming such a it's becoming part of the global zeitgeist. I mean, this guy is becoming a household name, and Elon Musk, if he isn't already so in some ways negative or positive connotation doesn't really matter when you say the you know the name elon musk people are like oh yeah he's the whatever guy right either yep. the crazy guy or the awesome guy and the in between doesn't seem to exist so which is a fascinating thing on its own but the the more that story has naturally progressed and has touched different parts of say society and how people think about technology or how people think about discourse and social media and billionaires and technology i mean you go on and on it's naturally also also steered my interest a little bit because i'm you know i love the company and i i've worked there and i'm passionate about its mission and all this good stuff but then as as that story evolves i find myself evolving with it and i'm exposed to all these all these other things i'm like okay i never actually sat down and thought about that like what how do i think about this if i sit down and i give this some some thought if i apply the, my analytical brain to this topic in the same way that i've applied it to tesla then I'm like, okay, wow. So there's some things here to talk about, but then I'm like, damn, do I really want to post this on my channel? Cause I'm afraid that my, my audience is going to be like, here goes Farza talking about something. He has no idea what he's talking about. And then yep. my pushback would be, I don't know what I'm talking about, about anything. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like, and then that's, that's part of my insecurity and my, uh, imposter syndrome to get over. Uh, does this connect with you at all? Because this has been my, it sounds like you've kind of gone through a very similar uh, discovery process on your site. Does this connect with you at all? Yeah, uh, it, it connects me very deeply. And I think it's really important for people, if anyone's in the audience that's trying to become a creator or trying to understand this, like Farzad and I are just two individuals. And, you know, Farzad has 60,000 subscribers. I have 20,000. In the grand scheme of things, as in the grand scheme of things, as much as that means so much to us, Social media has billions of people on it. So we're two little ants trying to figure out how do we get more people to care about us? And if more people care about us, obviously that's great for like opportunities in the future, but that's great because we're content creators. We want to create content. We want people to experience it. So as a creator, if you're trying to figure out how do I get people that have all different ideologies and perspectives and political views and this, this and that to give a crap about little old me, of course, you're going to feel like an imposter because you're like, well, what am I saying? That that's that important for them to care. And that's where, you know, the sort of conviction of do you feel the content you're creating as value, I think plays a role. I think one other thing that's important here is I think people have, creators have to earn the respect to talk about other things. That's a big philosophy mm -hmm. that I'm deep on, right? So like if you're starting a YouTube channel for the, for the first year, all I did was a, a four videos a day on Palantir because I was like, this is what I want to talk about. This is what I'm excited to talk about. And eventually, like it took me like, at least seven, eight months before I even mentioned I have a startup. Because I was like, who the hell is going to care about my startup? People are clicking because they want Palantir content. Why would they care about my startup? And I had developed such a trust and a community and a relationship and a work ethic for people and value where I mentioned my startup once and I get 100 emails the next morning saying, hey, can I invest? 
like, you guys want to invest in my start? This is what you guys want to do? And so I think if you work to a certain level, the uh, the nuances, you've got to be authentic as hell for people to really care about you. Yeah. You can then tweet about your political views. You can tweet about what you had for dinner. You can tweet about, you know, going hiking and people will engage because they care about Farzad. They care about Amit. They don't just care about Amit because of Palantir, Farzad because of Tesla, but that takes work. And I think it should take work to be honest. And if it does that, that makes sense. Yeah. It's interesting you say that because the, I've been, I've been subconsciously doing this, I guess on Twitter, because Twitter is like a platform where I feel a lot more. Um, I just don't, I guess, I guess I just simply don't care what people yeah. think on yeah. Twitter. You know, on YouTube, I, I I care what people think because I don't know, it's just the way I've cultivated the community, the way that, you know, I just have so much respect for the people that spend time watching my videos that I'm almost like hyper cognizant of what they think of me when I build my content. But on Twitter, I don't know what it is. It's just when I'm on there, I'm like, well, here, you, here's me. Like, it's not that I'm not me here, but it's like, you know, me in the context of Tesla, me in the context of technology, me in the context of EVs. But then on Twitter, it's just like, here you go. And okay, I, some stuff I say might be controversial and weird to hear, or, you know, it, it might sort of uh, disrupt some of the initial thoughts you had about me as an individual, but I find that so much more freeing and so much, uh, it's just much more rewarding to me as a human being, because I can just be like, here's what I think about something. And I know I'm being myself. I know I'm saying what I, what I want to say. And yeah, can I ask you a question? Yeah, of course. Why, why do you think that divide exists? I'm, and I'm genuinely curious about this. Why on YouTube do you feel like you're, all of us feel like we're playing a character and then on Twitter, it's like this authentic free, like has YouTube done something weird to cultivate? A system where it's that's a very fascinating question i think it's two, two two primary variables if i were to guess the first one and and this one i think it's either subconscious or conscious for all of us youtube is a legitimate source of income mm. yeah it's a legitimate source of income you know it's like i started yeah. youtube as as not an income source and then uh you know a year and a half later and when I go check out, hey, how's my video performing? I'm like, oh wow, that's a <laughs> that's a number. <laughs> I can do things with that number. That, that, pay, that pays some bills, you know. Yeah, not you know, I can do more things that I that you know that I'm currently doing that might be valuable for my you know me and my wife or our families and stuff like that. And so maybe part of that, uh, maybe there is like a subconscious or conscious fear that says, well, if I mess with this equation then yeah. maybe this will get impacted and then yeah. I won't have access to this thing anymore. So that's number one. And then number two, I do think the YouTube algorithm is is very much designed either on purpose or by accident to get you into a corner. It's like we will like you talk about Tesla, we'll send it to Tesla people. And then if you don't talk about Tesla, we're not going to send it to Tesla people. But then it's like, okay, but send it to the people that might be interested in this. And it seems like it's like, nah, <laughs> nah, it's okay. We don't care. So it's like, yeah, it, it that's yeah. what it feels like. Whereas Twitter, Twitter, I think the retweet button on Twitter is so freaking powerful. And wow. it's something that, that YouTube doesn't have. And that retweet button is a natural sort of, it, it's a, like a, almost like a, passive but active feature that Twitter has that allows videos and content and text or whatever to propagate as as humans would naturally propagate that information. Whereas YouTube, it's a computer doing that work for right. you. Right. Right. And I think that that's why Twitter 
if it resonates with a human being, Twitter has a much higher chance of getting it in front of more people than YouTube would. And that and that's why why I think Twitter is so successful from that perspective. What do you think about that? It's a great point. I mean, I just did a tweet about Robin Hood that got like, you know, 20, 30,000 views on Twitter, which means 20, 30,000 people at least saw it in their feed on YouTube. If I do a video about Robin Hood today, YouTube's just not going to show it to people. Now, do I really believe that on Twitter there's that many more people that care about Robin Hood versus YouTube? Like, no, I think YouTube's obviously much bigger. There's probably more people that care or at least the same amount. But the idea that YouTube would not show it to even one tenth of the people that they show my Palantir content to. It's like, it's concerning to me, but at the same time, I, you know, because I'm trying to build a startup in the content space, I also get it. I'm like, YouTube's like, hey, admit, none of those Robinhood people care about you. None of the Tesla, like I did a video on Tesla that got like 500 views a month ago. And I'm just like, well, Farzad does a video on Tesla, it'll get 50,000. What's the difference? It's like, well, their difference is Farzad has built a brand that's dedicated to that. He cares about it. He has right. way more content on it. You don't. So am I really going to blame YouTube at that level for, for not showing it, you know, to 50,000 people? Uh, no, I probably can't. But but the problem is then I'm boxed into this one thing. And it's like the it's like and Mr. Beast even talks about this problem, right? He that video he did about trying to help deaf people. It got like 89 million views. I think it was one of his lower performing videos in the past five does a fucking yacht video gets like 100 million in a day. And it's like, so he's just not going to help deaf people anymore for the it's like a really complicated divide. Yeah. You know? It's weird. And I and I do wonder too, just maybe maybe that's just how humans are. You know, yeah. I do I do wonder if Maybe, you know, maybe we're thinking that the algorithm is really this force that's hard to understand, but it's really just truly catering to the to to, to hu human brains and how so they true. act. And, you know, so maybe, we're, maybe we're just maybe we are the people <laughs> that are our fault. I don't know. But it's it's a fascinating discussion. And um, we've gone 25 minutes already talking about, you know, the difficulties of being a creator. And I, and I And I hope for people that are watching this that are thinking about uh doing a youtube channel or doing something do whatever you want to do just do it just start right i mean i think that's advice you would give too is like just start whatever you're you are passionate about in in a worst case scenario you'll find out that that's not what you want to do and in the best case scenario it's literally could be the greatest thing you'll ever do right so both outcomes seem positive right is there any advice you would give people yeah, this is the greatest time in the world to create content. The platforms care about you. They care less about advertisers because they know that they'll get more advertisers if they care about you. And that is a shift that has only happened in the past couple of years. Um, more platforms are starting every day. Twitter and YouTube are growing exponentially. So I think this is the time to create content if you want to create content. But the the one here's the one sentence I would give a piece of advice on. If you were trying to do YouTube, think of every video as a tweet. And what I mean by that is uh, when you post a tweet, two seconds later, it disappears. You kind of don't care about it. You move on to the next topic. On YouTube, and I've had this problem for like years, we've had this affinity that if I make a video, it shouldn't just disappear. It should have some value. It's a video. I spent some time working on it, creating it. But to YouTube, they get 500 hours of video uploaded a minute. I'll say that again. 500 hours of video uploaded a minute. And that was in 2019. It's probably close to like 750 hours now in 2024, going into 2024. So if that's the case, they, they'll they think of your video as a tweet. They won't really care how much time and effort you put into it. So you should also think of it as like, all right, this video's out. What's the next one? What's the next one? What's the next one? And it is a little bit of a rat race, but once you build out so many videos and have a catalog, you can start to really focus on what type of content you want to create. So I think quantity is the long game and then quantity will lead to quality. Nice. Great advice. Let me pick your brain on what you like to talk about often on your channel and something that I still can't get my head wrapped around, Emmett. And of course, I'm talking about Palantir. 
How's Palantir doing? Get our uh, audiences caught up on this. Uh, obviously, we know. I, 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 you know, they posted their first uh, profitable quarter ever or something in Q1, right? If, yep. I, if I remember correctly, um, it, it's run up quite a bit. I'll pull up the chart here once uh, I'll hand it over to you. But get the audience caught up on where the company's at. What's what's going on with that story? And then I'm gonna just ask you a few questions because I, to this day, I still want to want to, I want to want to invest in Palantir but I just simply still don't get it. So yeah. help me help me out, my friend. Yeah, that's give some, fair. Give some idea. Yeah, that's very fair. I mean, look, a lot, I, I think Palantir is not a company for everyone to invest in. Uh, it is a company that I've been trying to understand for two years, and I think I finally understand it at least to an extent. Um, here's the first thing I'll say about Palantir. The stock's up 137% on the year. It is down like eight, it was down 80% from the highs of 45 in 2021 when the world was going crazy uh, to about like below six, 590 was low. And now it's at 15 bucks. Uh, and the recent run-up has primarily been because most investors on the institutional side, because I think the 100% run-up in the past couple of months is institutional. I don't think retail could do that with 2 billion shares outstanding, uh, is primarily because uh, investors think this is going to be a big AI play. Um, the NASDAQ was down 35% peak to trough in February, and then ChatGPT went mainstream, got 100 million users in a couple of weeks. And that showcase to people that AI is going to be so deflationary, it's going to be like a different level of what we see in just on like, forget, forget the content side of it, of like, you can upload more content, it's more easier to edit all this stuff. Think about this in drug discovery, pharmaceuticals, supply chains, logistics, etc. So if investors are factoring in that AI is going to fundamentally re-architect re the way in which businesses operate, then the question becomes, what are the players that are going to be able to enable businesses to have some type of AI strategy? And Palantir in April released a, pl a platform called AIP, which is their version of being essentially a digital twin for every organization in the world and every single industry in order to help them be more optimized, efficient, um, you know, able to save, able to make more revenue and reduce more costs. And that's why the market's gone kind of crazy. So there's a lot to dive into, like the nuances of it. But the overall story is AI is now the future. Palantir has always been an AI player, but now the market really cares about AI. That's why the stock has run up. And then in terms of understanding the company, the simple argument is that the world is creating more data. Data is the new oil. Companies need to be able to learn how to manage and process that data. And Palantir is one of the most effective tools in the market to be able to help companies manage their data. And if that is the case, then I think this could be a very big company over the next two years, 10 years. Okay, great. So let me, let me sort of try and summarize what I think Palantir is, and then you tell me how accurate I am, okay? So and I'm gonna try to make it as as simplistic as possible to really get to the core of what Palantir does. So Palantir is a software suite that businesses and organizations can leverage to help them become way more efficient and way more effective. Is that a good summarization? That is a perfect summarization outside of the two words you use, software suite. I would re replace that with what the company says is they're an operating system. And I think that okay. changes the dynamics a little bit because software suite is more so like you just download the software, you plug it in, and then it goes. Palantir, before they work with a company, they consult with the company. So with BP, for example, they've had an exclusive contract with BP for a very long time. BP and their Q1 earnings just came out and said the cost of a barrel to drill oil was $14 in 2012. It has gone down to $6. So there's been an $8 reduction per barrel. You know, BP is doing hundreds of millions of barrels a day. That's a lot of money they've saved. It got to the point where BP even bought 1% of Palantir in 2021. They recently sold it off for $431 million because they were like, this software is just so amazing. Palantir it, it became an operating system for BP in which every department, accounting, finance, marketing, sales, 
uh, logistics, the actual drilling folks, they use the software and then they build apps on top of that software within the internal structure of the organization, which made the product incredibly sticky and made the product incredibly effective in terms of actually streamlining the business's ability to use data to become more effective. And so mm -hmm. if, if you think of it as an operating system, as a Windows or a Mac for an enterprise, then the sort of LTV of that enterprise becomes a lot more bigger. Gotcha. So it's it's more like it's it's more like it's it's a foundation it's a foundation uh, software or operating system like you said that helps. It, it's basically you build your entire company on this foundation, and then that foundation has built-in tools and and uh, things that help you run that business significantly more efficiently or or quicker or at lower costs than the alternatives. Correct? Is that a good Correct. way of thinking about it? Okay. And it's, and then all that operating system stuff is built with code, right? It's software. So somebody like the Palantir team, this is why what they're good at. They sit down to build, write the code so that this operating system exists for you to build your company on top of it. Is that a, yep. is that correct? That okay. Be. In the age of AI, why couldn't an AI build a Palantir? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. And you know, I've spoken to some very technical people in the Palantir community, and they have come to some unique conclusions, which is that all software might be useless by 2030. Like the idea that you need software to do anything or you need programmers in and of itself, uh, it's not like they're going away, but it's just not gonna be as useful anymore. And so this brings up the question of large language models, right? Because essentially LLMs, if they're trained on proprietary data within an organization, they can do what a lot of the software was doing, which is not gonna replace people. Those people are just gonna be able to use the LLMs to become more effective. And that's why I think over the past three months, Palantir has run up so much because Palantir recognized that what they're doing is going to become commoditized by AI in, in eventually. I think every software company realized that. But Palantir actually took action around that. And so in April, when they launched AIP, which is their AI platform, essentially their argument to the market was, okay, we've been working on AI for 20 years. Now AI is taking over. We have a suite of software products that are these operating systems for enterprises, governments, et cetera, that are incredibly effective. And we know they work. We've been able to sell them. You know, We did $1.9 billion in revenue, et cetera. We, we know it's cool. Now, if the market's shifting to AI, how can we become the de facto AI operating system of an enterprise? And so with AIP, what they've essentially said is, if you want to implement any level of infrastructure in your enterprise to allow LLMs to be trained on the data so that you can leverage the LLMs, meaning you know, if you're, uh, if you're a Hyundai and you need to know how many parts you need to order for a certain nut, uh, 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 a doorknob when you're building the cars, if you could ask an LLM a certain question and get an answer immediately, you know, your, your efficiency just skyrockets. But in order to do that, the LLM has to be trained on company specific data, which means that data has to be secure. It has to be protected. It has to be confidential. And it has to be built into an overall operating system that allows it to fetch those billions of data points in order to give you that answer in two seconds, which is what ChatGPT does. That's their new AIP platform. And their moat, which is why Bank of America just upgraded them from, I think, 13 bucks to $18, uh, even with their revenue growth not increasing. So Bank of America is like, we know your revenue growth has not changed, but we're still giving you a $10 billion market cap upgrade because we think it's going to go crazy if you get this right, which is they believe they have the most secure way to build AI infrastructure for companies. Um, if you don't build it in a secure way and have the data leaking, if, if you're working with a hospital, like they're working with the Cleveland Clinic and patient data leaks uh, in some capacity, those LLMs become worthless because now you have patient data that's leaking. Like it's, it's just, an, it's a non-starter. So the bull case for Palantir now over the next 10 years is if the AI enterprise software spend, I've seen many studies, 
averaging from 2.7 trillion to 4.4 trillion in the total addressable market by 2033 is, is a real thing. And every company, every enterprise in the world needs to implement AI infrastructure safely and securely. If Palantir is the de facto solution, or even one of the 10 companies that's part of that discussion, it could be a good return. Okay. So let me, let me see if I can simplify it and say it back. So, and again, for those that are not familiar, LLM stands for large language model, which is basically a fancy word for uh, what the AI system utilizes to spit out the answer, right? I mean, that's, is that a good Correct. way of, of putting Correct. it? Yeah. Um, and, and the reason why I'm doing this exercise, is so what you're explaining is, is super easy to understand. It's just the way my brain works is I, I need to break it down to the simplest form and then have somebody tell me if that's correct and then I can put that in a bank somewhere and then reference it back because that's, that's just just to give people insight into how I think. So um, Palantir's uh, moat for the next uh, decade or so appears to be its ability to ensure that the data that a company has that 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 makes that company that company so that proprietary information that very important thing that only that company can gather palantir's advantage is that they have the best way to ensure that that data never leaves the company and as and also to process that data in uh let's say at a at a state-of-the-art level that gets you the the best answer possible is that a correct way of saying what you just said Absolutely. That's the correct way of saying okay. it. And, and, you know, when you summarize it like that, in all honestly, it's like, why the fuck are we investing? This is like, this is so boring, right? When you compare it to Tesla or <laughs> Apple, like, it's just like, what the fuck is what? <laughs> really? This guy is building content around this? And it's like, this is where it's hard to get Palantir. Because if you go so deeper into it, let me give you one example. Uh, the NHS, the United Kingdom has 70 million people on their healthcare system. They have a nationalized socialized system. It's not private. It's been horrible. And this is what my UK subscribers tell me over the past 20, uh, 20 years. Like, it's just like the wait times, the backlogs. You know, in America, you call up someone, you have your insurance, you get through it, it's done. In the NHS, it's all socialized. Like, there is no private doctor. Doctors make $56,000 a year. So it's very complicated. Palantir is in the bidding to win a $611 million contract to completely overhaul the entire NHS's digital backend architecture and build them a new federated data platform. And more likely than not, we're going to get this contract. And so, those are the types of deals where you're like, okay, so an entire country's healthcare system is going to be managed by one company. I don't see Google doing that. You know, I, I don't see Snowflake doing that. Like th these are the mm. unique things when it comes to, well, why are they picking Palantir? What is Palantir offering that's so unique? How is this working? Then you take it to another level, Ukraine. Palantir builds a governmental software in the context of targeting and, and uh, it's called Gotham, which allows basically governments to be mission critical, ready for the battlefield. And Palantir software was the first software that Ukraine used. It's well documented at this point to stay alive against Russia. And so you've got two different areas. You've got healthcare, where they're managing, you know, 70 million people's healthcare uh, in the United Kingdom. And then you've got Ukraine, a country that's trying to maintain its sovereignty and using their softer software as, as basically a tactical nuke because they don't have any nukes of their own. And then you talk about what they're doing with BP. And so there's so many little internal intricacies of what Pounder is actually doing with data processing that makes, you know, finding patterns in the data and being able to make decisions off of it. It doesn't sound as much, it doesn't sound as boring when you look into the use cases of it. It actually sounds super exciting in the age of AI and LLMs. And then you're like, is there a bull case for the stock that you can justify? And if there is, it might be an exciting company over the next 10 years. So, so here's what I'm hearing. So what I'm hearing, so, so my background is business intelligence. So before this YouTube thing happened randomly at Tesla, I was a, 
essentially my expert, I was brought in because I knew how to process data and create tools and dashboards and, and actions for an organization to take as well as dig into it and get to work with the people so we can diagnose what's going on. And then before that, I was a director of BI at a billion dollar company. So like data is something that I'm very comfortable around. So what I'm hearing- And you have a degree in uh, math and statistics, right? Yeah, sure. I'm a huge nerd. Thanks for bringing that up, bro. <laughs> I stopped you. <laughs> I know. I know. <laughs> so, so here's what I'm hearing. So when I think about the NHS, when I think about uh, how they're processing the data that they have, to me, I don't think Palantir, just from the research I've done, what I'm, what, what I'm hearing, the how you action the data to me uh, is very much dependent in this day and age by the quality of analysts you have. I think the quality of analysts you have can be can go from rock star can do literally a hundred times better work, more work than the average analyst to just a giant liability to your to your company and your organization because that person's just creating dog shit data and dog shit analytics from that data, right? So, and mm -hmm. apologies for that verbiage, but it's very much accurate. And I know this because I lived it and I was that for a little bit of time before I learned how to do it properly. So, um, so that's, so from that perspective, as I'm hearing you talk, I don't think Palantir is necessarily that special when it comes to that it might give people a little bit better tool sets to do that maybe the way the data is uh built out and all the schemas that are there maybe it will standardize a lot of dimensions and values for you and do a bunch of complex stuff that usually an analyst will have to sit down and do great you can do that but you can do that today with an excellent analyst what i'm hearing is really the the value proposition for palantir is data protection and the ability for that software suite to be trusted by world governments. And so if, if Palantir is actually going out there, you know, a majority of their revenue, I believe, is from government uh, contracts, correct, today? Yep. I think with the U.S. Yep. government and a bunch of other places. So to me, it sounds like what, what Palantir excels at and the reason why they've been able to reach where they are is because uh, governments, institutions, corporations that value data privacy as... I guess at the highest rank of what they're looking for in a solution, Palantir seems to be doing the best in those categories. And so long term, as um, the as AI comes through and it becomes easier to hack stuff, it becomes easier to infiltrate things. When we get into the age of like, we're not fighting with weapons and guns and tanks anymore, we're fighting with artificial intelligence. Uh, this sort of wall that is Palantir against those attacks, to me, sounds like what they're really working towards and offering. What what do you think about that uh, sort of how I'm thinking about the company? I would agree that they are a defense contractor with a significant government moat. They just got $110 million from the Space Force last month in three contracts uh, last week. And those contracts were sole sourced versus single sourced, which means the sole sourced means there was no competition or bidding for the contracts. Because, yeah, because it was just them going for it. So I agree. Government's a major moat. Uh, and data privacy is incredibly important to the government. However, the research that I've done, the due diligence that I've done, which is a, it's a concern I had in 2021 because I was like, well, they're just making money from the government, the DOD. That's exciting. But like, why is there a massive multiple on it? Is is When you look at what they're doing with commercial enterprises, right now, the problem with Palantir is they suck at sales. They suck at their go-to-market. Like, And maybe that'll change by Q2, Q3. Alex Karp, the CEO, just said in the recent conference, we are getting a year's worth of demand in one month in terms of inbound. Either he's lying or he's, he's correct. And the numbers are going to prove if he's lying or if he's right in terms of how much inbound they're getting. But 
valuing it only as a defense contractor in the context of data privacy and all that stuff, I think would be an inaccurate way of understanding what they're doing in commercial. There's an article that came out that I'll send you after this as well, or I'll just put it in the chat um, that CNBC did. It's like a 20 minute article on Palantir's hospital operations and what they're doing in hospitals. People don't know this, but Palantir uh, powers 13% of beds in the United States of hospital beds. And like I, this, this stat came out a couple of weeks ago at their latest conference. And I was like, so 13% of beds, let's say there's 100 million beds in America, hospital beds, 13 million of them are powered by some type of software that Palantir controls. Palantir was the main uh, uh, um, operating system for vaccine distribution back in COVID during the pandemic. And whether you agree on vaccines or not, the point is like they were there when countries decided that this is what they wanted to do and Palantir software is the only thing available. So to me, when I look at those use cases, and then when I look at what they're doing with, with Tyson Foods, the people that make the chicken, they saved them $200 million last year. I'm just like, I don't know if it's just data privacy. I don't know if it's just business intelligence. I think there's something a little bit deeper in terms of the technology that are that is creating truly transformational results for these commercial enterprises. And then the business side of me as a stock picker is like, do I think this could scale to a couple thousand clients over the next decade? And if I think it can, then the multiple along with the AI market we're going into, this should be able to become a two, $300 billion company, similar to something like Salesforce, which is now at 250 billion over the past 17 years. And if that's the case, it's a nice 10, 15 X from here. Interesting. So, so when you mentioned the, the, the COVID vaccine, the bed, you know, the software power in the bed, my brain again, went to HIPAA and HIPAA mm -hmm. is a highly data dependent, uh, a privacy sort of thing. Right. And that's that, like, to me, it's like, okay, that's why Palantir potentially won that. But then when you say Tyson foods, I'm like, okay, that's just an enterprise doing work. So, um, so, so let me ask you this. So you said long-term it could have a similar market cap to a Salesforce, by the way, not, not, not financial advice and everybody just, this, these are just two guys that don't know what they're talking about. Okay. I have no idea. <laughs> but, um, so you said long term, it could have a similar market cap as a Salesforce. So does does this mean that Palantir is going to offer the same level of integration that a Salesforce does today long term? And do they do that already? Can you help me understand that? Yeah, I mean, I think Salesforce, you know, Salesforce, the trajectory, a lot of people want to call Palantir a trillion dollar company. I think that's a little ridiculous. Um, most every trillion dollar company has to have a consumer product, right? And so I do not see really over the next 10 years, Palantir being like, all right, well, we help enterprises with their data. Now we're going to help consumers with their data. Here's an app to manage all your data. I'm like, I don't think you're winning that game. I don't think people care that much uh, or they care, but I think other you know consumer startups are going to solve that problem. Hell, Apple can solve that problem versus Palantir. So I think the market cap is then if you can't get to a trillion, can you get to 250 billion? And 250 billion is round about 300 billion uh, where Salesforce was at the peaks, which means you know Salesforce is pretty much every single company I don't know, in the world and in, in a lot of parts of the world is using some type of CRM, uh, which Salesforce has their fingers in. If every single business in the world needs to use artificial intelligence to be to remain competitive, to have an advantage, to be able to make data driven decisions and to have the uh, the next iteration of what LLMs will be, because we don't even know what they're going to look like in the next 10 years. I would simply ask, what is a company that has been able to reinvent itself over and over and over over the past 20 years? And immediately when ChatGPT goes mainstream, not even a month later, they're like, we have our version of ChatGPT for enterprises. It's the most secure and we're ready to bring it out into the world. And it seems like that's Palantir. One thing to note here is they haven't acquired any companies in the past couple of years, whereas Snowflake, uh, something that's valued double of Palantir, even though, yes, it has a lot more clients. They just acquired a company called Neva, which is a failed search engine, failed in the words of the founders. They, they failed to build a consumer alternative to Google. And so now they're trying to acquire that company to help them with LLMs to make generative AI applications for enterprises. Palantir didn't need to acquire anybody. Within two months, Palantir released 
their version of what generative AI is going to look like. And to me, that speaks to the product obsession that the company has, which is at, you know, sales suffers when you have a CEO who only cares about product and hopefully that's fixed. But I think sales is fixable. I think it's hard to fix products. So over the next 10 years, a Salesforce reinvented itself over and over and over and integrated into every single enterprise in really in the world. I think Pounder has the potential to do that. So I, I looked up Salesforce valuation real quick. So market cap of 205 billion, 570 PE ratio tra trailing 12. Am I reading that correctly? Are they really given that big of a multiple? I guess sometimes Yahoo Finance is a little interesting, <laughs> um, okay. but that may be correct. Um, I think the bigger Maybe thing- they about profitable quarters or something. Yeah, I mean, Mark Benioff is trying to get the company to 50 billion in revenue by 2026. That is his goal. Uh, Pounder is projecting to do 4.5 billion in 2025. That's a 30% Kager. Right now, they're at an 18% Kager. They were at 41% in 2021, 24% 2022, and now they're at uh, 18%. So re revenue acceleration has not happened for Pounder. We have deaccelerated revenue. I think the market's bet of giving Pounder a $30 billion valuation right now is that this AI shit is not a joke. And if it's really going to be the market we think it's going to be, there's only going to be a couple players that major enterprises trust. And if Pounder is one of them, just like there's, there's not that many CRMs that are as phenomenal as Salesforce, even though there's a lot of CRMs, there's a lot of AI startups, a lot of AI companies, but the UK Ministry of Defense, you know, gave Pounder $91 million. The CDC gave them $455 million. Uh, Lithuania just opened up an entire tech hub that's built by Pounder because they're one of the Baltic states and they're afraid that Russia is going to fucking come in and do something. Like, so it's just, they have their fingers everywhere. Pounder is another stat I think you might've heard of. Pounder is one of three companies in the world that has IL level six security clearance with the DOD. The other two are Microsoft and Amazon, both trillion dollar companies. Pounder is a $30 billion company. It's like, what is this $30 billion company doing with these two mm. giants when it comes to what they're doing with the DOD? And then the question is, if they're doing this with the DOD, is there any way they can bring that to a commercial enterprise, which is a lot less complex than the DOD? And if that's the case, then that's the bull case for Pounder. Do you think Palantir is going to be everywhere in 10 years? Is that how you're thinking about it? Like literally everywhere? That's why I invested in 2021. My, my thought process was, okay, I see them in energy. I see them in healthcare. I see them in drug discovery. I see them in supply chains. I see them in logistics. I see them, you know, and like I, I'm, I'm a little bit younger. So the, the, the heart and, and soul in me is like Tesla, Apple, the stuff that I use every day, blah, 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 blah. But then I really just spent a year diving into the company. I was like, I want the analytical side of myself to make a decision here from an investment perspective. And when I look down at it, I'm like, I think they're going to be everywhere. I think they're going to have their hands in every single industry. And that's not even mentioning all the stuff they're doing in the government space. And so that's what got me really excited about it. Cause I'm like, I don't want to miss a company that is going to be a platform for the entire world. And I missed, you know, I, I, I did this video a long time ago. It's like, I was, I missed Shopify in 2017, even though I was using the platform. I was like, I was building my own little drop shipping stores, but the stock was cheap in 2017. And I didn't understand anything about stocks. And I'm like, huh, I'm using this platform which I know is a platform that millions of small businesses are using. It is the de facto way to sell things on the internet unless you go with Amazon. Why am I not invested here? And so the due diligence I've done on Pounder is like, they're going to be everywhere. And if that's the de facto platform, then I want to invest in that. Interesting. So I'll be honest, you, you've given me the most, the, so you've gotten me the closest to want to want to invest out of anybody I've talked to. Because I, I think good. I think I'm <laughs> you're great. That's why you're that's why you're successful. Uh, I I really so the fact that they're not every they're not anywhere right now. They're barely anywhere. If you really think about total percentage of uh, software usage per day and on planet Earth, 
that you know where Palantir could be a potential solution for that thing. They're very, they're like the fractional percentage, right? So they have a giant market to grow into. Then the other plus I would give them is that their balance sheet is freaking strong, right? Three no billion debt. in cash, no debt. Three billion in cash. Yeah. yeah. So that's for a software company. That's that seems to be pretty lean. Um, that's fantastic. That's kind of rare, and I think it, it's you know th that's very good to see from the standpoint of. Here's a guy that actually wants to set up the company for success, right? It's and, also founder-led. Founder-led. Cool. Founder right? I mean, that, that's yeah. one of the, I mean, I know, I, I, I kind of think of that as a moat, you know, it's like Elon, he's, he took Tesla to heights, Zuckerberg took Meta to heights. I think Carp is one of those guys, if you go deep into him, like, is he the guy to 20X Palantir? Because honestly, if he steps away, I, I don't know if I keep investing in Palantir. I'm like, I think that's the guy. And, you know, we can, we can get into him if you want, but I also think that is a part of like, the bull case to at least throw something into Palantir. Like, do you think that guy's eccentric enough? He's shaking hands with Vladimir Zelensky a couple months after the war starts. Is that the guy you think can 20x the company? And if that's the case, you know, maybe that's the case. So tell me, why why is he that guy? Well, so Carp, you know, Carp, I've studied Carp deeply over the past couple of years. Carp got a PhD in philosophy in Germany. And so he's an existentialist. He thinks very deeply about the philosophical sort of nature of, of, of human existence and societies. On top of that, his grandfather died when he was about 26 years old and left him a big inheritance. So he had a couple million dollars, I believe, to play with. And he started a VC fund at 27, 28 years old. And he was very successful. I can't name the companies that he invested in because I can't find any of that information on the internet. But it was to the point where he had a lot of wealthy people giving him money to manage because he was taking these weird bets on startups and they were working back in like the early, uh, the late 90s, early 2000s. So you've got a guy who has a business sense in terms of a capital allocation. And then you've got this philosophical side of him that really thinks about the world in an interesting way. Then he goes to Stanford, meets Peter Thiel, and Thiel sells PayPal for $1.5 And it's like, look, and then 9-11 happens right after they sell PayPal. And he's like, can we have used any of the software we made at PayPal, which is essentially fraud mitigation software. That, that was the moat of PayPal and pattern recognition and data analysis at, at, at a time where that didn't even, that wasn't even a thing in 2001 to then bring that to the government. And that's how it got incubated by the CIA's venture capital fund to actually become a defense contract and become a company. And he asks, he asks CARP to, to run the ship. And so you've got a guy that for the past 20 years has been at one company, has a deep philosophical understanding of the nature of how data privacy, ethics, security systems work, and is a good capital allocator. And then you have to ask yourself a deeper question. If Palantir was used in a wrong way, which is why Palantir has never done business in Russia and China, um, this software could like truly kill the world. I mean, like if it gets into the wrong hands, some, some people could do some really bad things with it. So to, why? To, well, the software, like just let's, let's just look at targeting in and of itself, right? I mean, the, the Palantir is a, a, a piece of software called Meta Constellation, where they take real-time geospatial intelligence from the sky and it uses edge AI. Edge AI means the AI is not running on a server. It's running at the edge right on the device. And you're getting real-time intelligence on how to kill people, how to, how to get rid of Russian tanks, right? So you think of a company uh, or a country like Russia and China having access to that software. They've got targeting stuff. They don't have anything uh, close to what Palantir has. Um, and that's that's like just documented and well proven. And if they did, you know, they would be doing a lot better in Ukraine. So if they had access to that, or if they had the capability to build stuff like that, what would they do? And we would argue some pretty bad things. And so you've got a guy leading a company that understands that. 
right? He's not profit at all costs. In fact, investors hated him for 10 years because he didn't do business in all these different places because, he, you know, Trump wanted to build a Muslim database. That's when and they asked Palantir to do it. Palantir said, no, we're not doing it. I'm fucking building a Muslim database. So you can track all the Muslims in America. Like they do have ethics for the people that say they don't have ethics because you have a CEO who actually cares about that type of stuff. He's managing how to how to protect civil liberties so that the world doesn't spy on you uh, with governmental protection. And here's here's one point I really want to make that I want to get your take on as well. Peter Thiel is a libertarian. So Peter Thiel believes in, in, in little government, right? He believes in Ayn Rand type of philosophy, self-rationalism. He's like, less government, more just let me have freedoms. But after 9-11, we had the Patriot Act. So after a terrorist attack, the United States government was like, okay, we're going to invade all of your privacy because there was no chance in hell we're ever going to let something like this happen, which resulted in massive government surveillance, the NSA, a lot of uh, Islamophobia started to happen in the United States, all that type of stuff. So Peter Thiel's philosophy for starting Palantir was actually the most contrarian thing ever, which is why I love this guy. And Alex Karp kind of agrees with this, which is if you want the government to not invade your life, to not surveil you, we need to have a safe society. Because as soon as something bad happens in society, the government now has an excuse. They literally can use that as the reasoning, as the means to the end to be able to justify massive surveillance. So the only way to stop mm. the government from invading you and, and surveilling you is to not have those problems happen. Well, the only way to not have those problems happen is technology. So if you are able to stop terrorist attacks from happening, which is Palantir found Osama bin Laden, Palantir did many things in Europe to stop right-wing terrorism from increasing, then you have a government that doesn't have an excuse. They just have software that can stop bad things from happening, but they can't say, oh, this bad thing happened. Therefore, we have to surveil you even more to make sure you're not part of the problem. And that philosophical narrative of Palantir is only led by someone like an Alex Karp and a Peter Thiel that truly understand that mission and then can scale that into enterprises where enterprises, the biggest thing they care about is data security and privacy to make sure that you know none of their confidential data is leaked. And so I think he's the guy to get the job done. So how's Palantir, how is Palantir preventing bad things from happening or trying to minimize bad things from happening without using data that is invasive? That's a great like question. What, how do they do that? So this is where they have something called um, cross-tracking interfunctionalities. I know that's a, that's a lot of buzzwords, but the point is they have built their software with the, the granular access controls that allows the CIA, for example, to have certain access and controls and relationships with different databases that the CIA is monitoring for whatever the CIA is doing that the FBI doesn't have access to. Before Palantir, this didn't exist. If the CIA or the FBI just wanted some pieces of data, they would you know, go in their little spreadsheets, they would figure out the data. You don't know who has control over it. You don't know who accessed it. You don't know who touched it. This, this, that. This is why Trump is going through all the classified document stuff right now. With Palantir software, if the CIA is doing something in relationship to a potential terrorist attack that is happening, but the CDC or the NIH or the FBI is not allowed to have access to that data, that's all built in to Foundry in and of itself. And so this is why governments have adopted it in the first place, because a lot of governments have been like, okay, we need different organizations working in a centralized location where they can work with data and not make sure the data is compromised. Now, in the context of are they using certain data on you know, us, I think that's every government in the world. They all have a digital profile or Farzad or Amit, and they all have some level of control over you. The question is, are they abusing that? And I think what Palantir has done is actually thwarted a lot of the government's overreach because they've been able to stop bad things from happening and protect different agencies from not have act having access to certain types of data, which has overall been net good at the end of the day for everybody else. But doesn't that mean that Palantir has, is that entity that has all the data? No. So Palantir, this is another misconception. Palantir doesn't store any of that data. It's a it's a, it's a government's data. It's a company's data. This is why there's a bull case for Tesla and a bear case for Palantir. Tesla is an AI play. 
all that FSD data is proprietary to Tesla. Like at the end of the day, Tesla owns that data and they can leverage it. Palantir doesn't own any data. Palantir owns a picks and shovels tool that is like top of class to, or, to, to, to organize the data and to help organizations better understand it. So if you disinstall Palantir tomorrow, it's not like Palantir and their servers in Colorado have the FBI's data um, because like they don't own that data. The FBI owns it. The bull case is because Palantir is integrated so deeply into the FBI and they're so effective, the FBI is, is never going to get rid of Palantir. They're always going to keep giving them money because the FBI needs to manage data. And if Palantir mm. helps them do that with the correct technology and access controls, then Palantir is a smart product for the government. Interesting. So so what I'm hearing is, so so what you just described, sort of this, uh, this really helps me, like, thank you. This is very valuable for me, by the way. Thank you. This is, this is awesome knowledge for me to really get my head wrapped around this thing. So... So Palantir has the has the operating system sitting with multiple organizations and governmental entities that would benefit tremendously and are currently benefiting tremendously from quote unquote sharing the data between each other. But Palantir right. is the middle player that's ensuring that what gets shared is not too much data, that it's just enough for them to do their job without violating any uh privacy sort of things that could could arise so so my my thing goes like how do we know that's actually happening like like is palantir really the company like are we just trusting carp to ensure that he is playing by the rules like how, yeah, how well, do we know this is actually legit it's a good question it's the same question of like how do we know facebook's not looking at my text messages even though they say it's encrypted it's like get the fuck out of zuckerberg you know you're looking at that shit. you know it's just like it's, it's hard mm. to kind of justify it. i think in the context of governments, uh, Carp was at an interview the other day, uh, I think in Bloomberg, and they asked him, like, you know, how do you know who's, how do you know Ukraine's using your software? And he's like, we know. He's like, when they stop using our software, we know. He's like, we can see how they're using our software. We can control it. We can understand it, all that stuff. Uh, we, we can see all that type of stuff. And so as a result of that, you, you want to believe that as they've licensed the, the software platforms to the entities that are using it, They've created the controls necessary to make sure that those platforms are used in an ethical way. Now, is that happening? I would argue yes on the simple assumption that if it wasn't happening, I don't think the software would be that effective. I think we would see a lot more security breaches, a lot more confidential data being leaked, and a lot more overarching surveillance that's going on in the world. I think since I think the Snowden files and a lot of stuff like that, it has decreased dramatically. And that's sort of my naive way of uh, you know uh, compartmentalizing it. But at its core... I don't think Ukraine, oh, here's the actual answer. I just thought of the answer as you're saying it. The first answer was like, okay, I, I want to trust Palantir. The better answer is Europe. I mean, that's, that's really the answer to your question. Europe is, is a stickler for GDPR, regulations, data privacy frameworks, et cetera. And CARP and Palantir do a lot of business in Europe. I don't think European governments and institutions would ever allow a spy evil software that is harnessing all of our data, taking it back, blah, 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 doing all this type of stuff if it was actually doing what they said they were doing. And so I think the European business is a good hedge against Palantir manipulating data. Not saying it's not happening, because I, I think it could definitely happen in every company. But given the extensive work they're doing in, in Ukraine, the UK, et cetera, and how those governments have no tolerance for that, even though the United States has a lot more tolerance for surveillance because freedom and all that stuff. Um, I would say that's the reason why you would trust Palantir and just assume that they're better than any other governmental contractor that could try to solve this problem. Interesting. But, but then I guess where my mind goes to is... If Palantir reaches their goal of, say, world domination, right? Like they're just everywhere in 10 years' time, and they have the they have the framework, the pipes that 
hook up through the data that they don't own. But then theoretically, they have a schema or call it like a, a network of data that there very well could be interplay between the different data sets. So like say, there might be airline data that a, that a freaking uh, food manufacturer could use because they could time their, uh, their shipments to go places and mm -hmm. Palantir can be the bridge between those two companies, right? Like that, that's where I think that that's where it could be incredibly valuable for something like a Palantir. You're, you're creating bridges between data sets that you never thought uh, would exist, A, because companies don't want to give up their data, and then two, because of a technical, you know, from a technical perspective, but because Palantir is a middle company, you very well could create those bridges, which could mean that both the, the airline and the food manufacturer could become incredibly more efficient because they're utilizing each other's data without lifting one finger. It's just Palantir does it. But then here's my concern. When CARP inevitably dies, what happens to this corporation that theoretically has access to everything? What happens then? So it's a good question. Two points. Number one, that, that conclusion you came to about the network effect is phenomenal. I mean, and it is exactly correct. I didn't get to speak to that, but a lot of people say Pounder is a consulting company because they send these engineers into BP or Tyson or United Airlines and say, how do we help your business? And then it takes them 18 months to get paid. In those 18 months, they're finding so much R&D. They're doing so much recent research and development in terms of how do we actually help an airline solve their like uh, manufacturing problems, supply chains, logistics, et cetera, that they take that data and that becomes a network effect to then help um, you know, Southwest Airlines and all these other companies. Insofar as Pounter developed a software with Airbus back in 2017 called Skywise. Skywise is an operating system for the sky. Uh, and I would encourage people to read a little bit more about it. I've done some videos on it. Almost every airline manufacturer in the United States is using Skywise for logistics, supply chains, et cetera, to be able to manage their fleet of airlines. Um, and that was only done because they did a partnership with a company for three years and developed that network effect that they can then feed into so many other industries. Um, so that, that's a really good analysis. And I think that's a major bull case for Palantir. In terms of if CARP dies, um, yeah, look, I, I think if CARP dies, someone needs to be at the head of Palantir that understands the deep responsibility Pounder has. This is why they have F-class shares. This is the FU shares, right? Because their whole argument is there is no way any institution, no uh, a Carl Icahn can come in here and say he doesn't like what's going on and then replace me. Like I, I, I have to be the guy. And so I was happy to approve his F-class shares. And uh, I think he's the guy to get it done because he has proven over the past 20 years that he actually cares about this stuff, which is why he's the guy I want to invest in. If he dies, that's a big deal. And that would definitely question my investment thesis in Palantir. Similar to if Elon dies, I question the investment thesis on Tesla. Now, I know Tesla's a well-oiled machine and it can run, but Elon's a big part of the moat as well. So I think that would be interesting for both companies. Interesting. Okay. So, so the F-class shares to me is a signal that Palantir very much has thought about this in the long term yeah. and that that's yeah. what they're going for that they're going for that we we want to be the pro the 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 operating system for corporations on planet earth we want to be that that the palantir it's like from freaking lord of the rings you know that's why they got their name right is the palantir yeah. it's the, it's the all-seeing eye whatever the yep. hell that, that which is why people is, right? consider it like a spy company you know <laughs> and it's a myth that they haven't done a good yeah. job at clarifying but the f-class shares are also an fu to shareholders because that means if we don't like what carb's doing we can't vote him out we can't say like hey like we we cannot express share voting and class structures are the only way shareholders have a real say in the company like a real way to do something done which is vote his ass out we can never do that 
So investing in Palantir is a real, real big, like, I trust this guy, which is why everyone analyzes what he says so deeply. And you wouldn't assume he's lying because if he is and he has F-class shares, I mean, he knows investors will leave in a second if he if he's lying to them or BSing them. And so that's why, you know, you tend to trust the guy. But I feel like that's I feel like the only way something like with this kind of company, with this kind of vision can get done is if the leader says, nope, <laughs> I'm going, y'all can come. And if you don't want to come, screw you. I don't care yeah. we're, we're going to get this done. So so then this also is betting on the fact that over the long term, sort of this data is the new oil sort of thesis is that as this becomes more and more true, which I, I I really do believe that data is the most valuable thing in the world. And and it will become even more valuable as we use data to power more and more of our systems, more and more of our algorithms, our artif you know, artificial intelligence systems, LLMs, all that stuff, right? So data is really becoming incredibly valuable. And is that the power of that data compounds over time and the ability to pull from different places to make sense of the world from a data perspective opens up a host of possibilities from a, I don't know, just like I said, efficiencies between companies, efficiencies in the supply chain, understanding how the world's operating. So, it, um, go ahead. I was gonna say, it sounds boring, even though it is exciting, but on the surface level, it doesn't sound like we're uh, getting it's not the boring. Yeah, I mean, and to no. the average consumer, I mean, you know, you and me are little nerds, but like the average consumer is like, should I buy some pounds? They're making companies more efficient. Versus... Well, I wouldn't say it's boring. It's this is hard to understand. Yes. Right. This is, and, and I'm and not saying it's because people are dumb. That contrary, people on average are a lot smarter than people give credit for. Like all of us are a lot smarter than we think. Right. <laughs> you know, but this this concept is very much a weird gray area that seems a it's very futuristic, but at the same time, it, it brings up a host of questions for, for somebody that's like, okay, what this means that there's a singular company that can see my data, it can see everyone's data, and they can bring everything together. And, you know, it, it opens up a host of questions that in a successful, like if, if Palantir were to succeed, potentially it brings up more questions that it answers. And I wonder if that is one of the big um, hurdles for people to get on, on this name because it's so it's it's so unapologetic on betting on this future of data becoming the new oil and leveraging that data for a better world and trust the guy that's making this happen because he's always going to have humanity's best interests in mind like that entire equation is it's kind of similar in a way to the tesla story which is like, yo, this guy is doing whatever he wants with the EVs and Twitter and whatever. Yep. But like, I've come to the conclusion that says, yeah, but I trust the guy. <laughs> yeah. Yep. You know, even Palantir when he tweets some nonsense, you're like, I don't care. I still trust him in the overall vision. Right. right? I think the Wall Street Journal right. said he does ketamine at, at parties or some story that released. Who today. does? Elon. You didn't see the story? No. <laughs> he does like he does ketamine and like hard drugs at parties. The Wall Street Journal reported today. I'm like, I tweeted on it. I was like, that hard drugs and running two public companies I've respect are you surprised <laughs> i'm thinking of doing some cocaine running all this shit it's crazy that's funny yeah it, it is it is um okay dude you've really helped me wrap my head around this story big time um now the question becomes how likely is it for palantir to reach that potential and what is a fair valuation for that story right and we touched on it a little bit but 
Um, did you have any additional thoughts on that you want to share? Yeah, I think uh, short term, it is a bit overvalued. It's growing 18% year over year, and it's at 30 billion. Um, going to do 2.1 or something billion dollars in revenue. And I've been saying it's overvalued at 10 bucks, 11 bucks, 12 bucks, because I'm such a pound of bull and I'm such a big skeptic. Uh, the market has given this AI premium that forced me as an investor to really look into AI and be like, all right, is there a moat here that is so unbelievable that it justifies a massive premium from, from you know, 150% gain in the past month uh, that I'm missing? And I think the answer is yes. Uh, the question simply becomes, is the customer count, which is the biggest metric in Q2 to look for, going to match what Bank of America and all these other analysts are saying? And if that grows, even if revenue doesn't accelerate, if that grows, because Palantir monetizes kind of 18 months after they secure the client, um, then I think that's a big deal. An example of this is Panasonic. So they, they secured Panasonic as a client uh, about a year ago. And on June 7th, they put out a press release where they signed a, um, a, 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 a agreement with Panasonic Energy of North America, PINA to deliver operations and digitally transform the smart factory in Sparks, Nevada, that's building the batteries for Tesla, right? That's a big factory that has big ties to Tesla. So Tesla's not using Palantir for, for, for all the due diligence I've done. But if the company that's building the batteries for Tesla is saying, this software is literally making our company more efficient and more effective with plans to expand the partnership to Wichita, Kansas for the new factory that Panasonic is, is building in 2025, you really start to ask yourself, like, damn it, in the next 10 years, do I think more companies like Panasonic, like Cisco, you know, all these big, big names that are using Palantir for different use cases. Cisco is trying to integrate WebEx, which is their like Zoom competitor across different regulatory frameworks, which is why they use one of Palantir's backend art, uh, software platforms called Apollo. So that's a totally different use case than BP trying to uh, reduce their oil costs from Panasonic trying to make sure that they have a, a smart factory so that they can get better uh, efficiencies for batteries to Tesla from Ukraine trying to defend its sovereignty. And so I look at all of that as an investor and I'm like, huh, 30 billion is a little pricey right now, but if I'm really in the long term, do I care if I bought it at 12, 15 or 20? Probably not. Do I think it's going to 200? And, or at least 150, that's kind of my price target at one, by 2030. And if that's the case, then I think the stock is, is cheap right now, but I wouldn't go all the way. I would, I would DCA heavily because I think it can definitely get a pullback back to 11 or $12, not financial advice. That's just how I see it. And, um, that's where I think Palantir should be fairly valued. And over, over the next seven years, if we can get to 150, I think it'll be a great return. Okay. Well, thank you for sharing that. Let me ask you a quick question about Tesla and then we'll do some Q&A. Perfect. How does that sound? I love it. Okay. So we, <laughs> there was a big, uh, so do you currently own Tesla? I don't think so, right? So I sold my 22 shares of, so this is my Tesla story real quick. I had a, no, 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 Farzo, this is, this is the ship that pissed <laughs> me off. It, no, 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 it's not you. In 2019, I bought, I don't know if you remember an article, uh, Goldman Sachs Tesla was going to $10. It was 170 pre, pre, pre split. I don't know how many splits that is, but that's, that's before they ever did a split. I was in college on my Robinhood account. I was like, this is stupid. Tesla's a good company. I bought a, I bought some Tesla, right? And I kept buying Tesla. Then it goes to 350. So I'm double, right? Cause I got it like 150, 170. So I'm, I'm, I'm up on my money. I asked my friend, uh, my friend who had just retired. I respected this guy. He was working at some banker, but I was like, yo, should I, should I sell Tesla? He's like, you're up hundred percent. Sell it. Mind you, I was up like $700 or whatever, right? And I'm like, why? He was like, you're up 100% on Tesla. It's 2019. It was like December. You should sell it. I sold all of it. Then we know what happens in 2020. The shit starts running and running. So I bought it again. And then it fell back down. That's where I got scared because I'm a naive investor. I was like, I just put 10000 into this. Now it's 8000 I'm going to sell it. I'm going to cut my $2,000 loss. And I go through this whole cycle. Unfortunately, in the greatest bull market of humanity in 2020, <laughs> I had to be the lucky guy that was stuck making the most idiotic buys and sells. Like, literally, you would want to slap this person on the most innovative company in the world, Tesla. 
And so I have a very dicey relationship with that because I, I got it, but I missed it. I got it, but I missed it. And so recently I sold my 20 shares because there were some options that were undervalued on regional banks. And so I bought those because I was like, it's 4,000 bucks. I'd rather get the return there. So I'm waiting to get back into Tesla, but it's been a bumpy road because I was in it so early in 2019, which I know is not early, early, but I was in it before the run-up and then I missed out. Well, okay. I mean, I, I completely understand. I mean, it, it's, I've, I've had that happen to me with different names in the past, uh, back in like 2012, 2013, when I started my investing journey. Mm. Um, so, but you don't think you don't see a pathway cause you, you're seeing a 10 X pathway for Palantir for the next decade. Yeah. You don't see that for Tesla. Then is that a good way of summarizing sort of why, like, why isn't more of your net worth in Tesla versus Palantir? I'm guessing you're not seeing the same level of potential long-term. From a yeah, I mean, so, perspective. so it has to get to eight trillion in 2033. Uh, I don't know if that's happening. I think it happens if they solve FSD and robo taxis. I am a bit more skeptical, and it's not kind of the Dan O'Dowd video. I'm just, I'm just a bit more skeptical that uh, countries will regulatorily allow it, or and not even just allow it, but that it'll actually work to the level that Elon thinks it's going to be. Now, you know, he just said version 12 is not going to be a beta, right? He's he's like very confident about it, and I want to trust him, and I want to trust the AI in regards to that as well. I just think eight trillion is something we haven't seen before. And I think there has to be these really overarching catalysts like RoboTaxis or Optimus or whatever to get us there. Whereas Palantir, they just have to keep selling their software to enterprises and there's your 10X. Um, Tesla's way more exciting. I just don't know if eight trillion 2033 happens. Okay. So the, the pathway to that valuation from a Palantir perspective is it's much easier to see because they just have to keep doing what they're doing. Whereas Tesla has to have a pretty giant breakthrough in technology to make that happen. Yeah, because the market yeah. for AI enterprise software spend is catering at about $43 billion a year. Tesla's margins eventually have to go down, right? I think we can all agree on that. There's going to be more players in the EV space. There's going to be more competition. So why if, do if, they have if, to go down? Well, aren't they down already? They're from 25% to 17%, 18% over the past, just because of the subsidies, all of that stuff. Um, the competition that is coming. I know a lot of those uh, competitors have decided to use their charging and all that stuff. So there's all these bull cases towards it. But if you ask me in 2030, the 100 million vehicles America sells, is Tesla going to have 30, 40% of that share? I don't think the answer to that question is yes. I think there's going to be a lot more EV players. I do think Tesla is going to monetize the vehicles that they sell way more aggressively. But if here's my point. If you give the assumption that there's not going to be this massive 25% uh, margin for automakers, which is amazing in 2030, and th that the tech is going to have to value the business, it's going to give the upside, which is the FSD, then the question simply becomes, does FSD get solved or not by then? And if that's the case, I don't know if that gets solved by 2020, 2033. Uh, if you want to make the bull case that they're selling 20 million cars and that the margin on those are amazing, yes. But I think most people think 20 million is a bit aggressive. It might not happen. So if all in all, the real bull case on Tesla, even if the margins are great, even if they sell a crap ton of cars, is the tech margins, the SaaS margins are this robo taxi thing. And because it, it, I think you can get to two, three trillion on selling all those vehicles with like 25% margins, which will be generous and give them there. But the four, five, six, seven, eight trillion, that's a SaaS company uh, with SaaS margins. And that's got to be their Uber killer. And I don't know if that happens in 10 years. But but if Tesla is an AI play, don't you think don't you think that that's really the like. So when do you think it will happen? Like, do you think it's an unsolvable thing or do you th or do you think that it will happen? It'll just take longer than 10 years. Here's a good question. I, I, I agree with the last part. I think it will happen. It'll take longer than 10 years. But here's a question I asked Carlos, who, uh, you know, from our Finance Junkies podcast. Let me ask you the question as well. OK, 2033. You're let's say you have a kid and, uh, you know, your your kid is going to swimming practice. Uh, Cindy can't, can't drive them. You can't drive them. Uh, 
and but this Tesla FSD Uber is there, or your mom's coming from the airport. Would you be comfortable with your kid or your mom? Legitimately, would you be comfortable entering into this car that you call up for them on the Tesla FSD Uber app and then driving them to a place? I personally cannot wrap my head around me not driving my mom or getting an Uber for my mom, but me trusting this thing is going to perfectly drive my mom. And maybe that's my naivete because I couldn't imagine not typing into Google one day and now we have ChatGPT, so I could be wrong about that. But I can't wrap myself around that. And if I can't wrap myself around that, I don't know how the world wraps their mind. And Carlos, by the way, said he, could, he couldn't imagine doing that. I'm like, Carlos, you're, you're the guy who's the Tesla bull. How are you saying? He's like, I just, I don't think it would be safe. And so that's the hard part for me to think that it would become such a big reality to the point where this fleet of vehicles is generating them these trillions of dollars of revenue at these ridiculous margins because the world has adopted driverless cars. And if I can't get my head around that, I think it's going to be hard. If there was a driverless car that was approved by regulators that is run by Tesla in 10 years time, I would trust my parents and my children a thousand times over in that car versus an Uber driver. See, and that's no fair. Question. And I'm thinking if no the question. driverless, I'm thinking if there's a drunk driver and there's a driverless car, do we think the software is that good that it's going to recognize that the drunk driver is doing something messy and like not get into a crash? And maybe it is, but it's like at this moment in time, I can't see that vision fully play out. Self-driving cars will remove drunk drivers from the road. The, right? Theoretically. I mean, unless a percentage of them. Well, a, a good percentage of them. of them, right? That would happen. Yeah. People are driving are doing so. Yeah, that, I mean, that's your bull case, right? Like that's why yeah. that's why, you know, every time I get into this conversation, I'm like Elon himself said, FSD is the difference between Tesla worth zero or, or trillions. Um and so look, I believe it's going to happen at this point. It's hard for me to wrap my head around that versus something like a Palantir. But yeah. if it does happen and I miss out on that, then that sucks, right? And that's that's why I do want to get a Tesla position soon. Do I think it's going to be as applicable as like BP paying more for Palantir because they need their software? I don't know. That's the hard part. Yeah. To kind of figure out. I mean, so let me let me end up with this and then we'll get into Q&A. So like the and, and response if you have one, you know, back in the early 1900s, we went from horse and buggy to vehicles on the road in 10 years, right? Sure. It, it happened sure. very, very quickly. And if what's what's Tesla and Elon Musk companies good at taking a technology, a technological revolution or innovation that people think is absurd, and then they make it a reality. In this case, SpaceX with the reusable rockets, they've done their 200th recovery, I think, uh, very recently, and uh, making an electric vehicle, not just viable, but the best cost per mile for uh, for like segments and profitable. Right. So it's it's the best solution out there. And and within a 10 year time scale, I find it very hard to believe that they wouldn't they won't have self-driving solved to a level that a is orders of magnitude safer than a human and b orders of magnitude cheaper per mile yeah. than a transportation system today. Yeah. And when you pair those things together, I find it hard to believe that in the markets where this is offered, uh, less than 50% of the population would take that up. I just don't see that happen. I just, it, I'm it's, I, maybe I'm a giant moron, but I just have a very hard time seeing that not happening. No, that's a, that's a, that's a, that's correct. And that's why my heart is like, you need to buy some fucking Tesla and stop being an idiot. <laughs> because, because what you've said, there is literally no bear case I can put to that because you're being conservative with your estimates and you're still getting to this massive explosion, which would be FSD. And you are correct on the ethos of it, which is no one likes fucking driving, bro. I want to drink my coffee, eat my bagel. I don't want to fucking worry about the road. It's such a time suck. So the productivity levels would increase. And, you know, Vitaly on Finance Junkies, he said, instead of charging 15K, 
What if it's 100 bucks a month? 150 bucks a month? Exactly. I mean, that's like a game. Who, if you're buying a Tesla, you can afford $150 a month for FSD. And then that's a game changer in terms of the productivity it creates. So you're correct on that. It's just at this stage in my life, I, I see a, a Palantir like of software being a little bit more applicable in my head. But you're okay. correct. And there's nothing wrong with your bull case, which is why I do need to have a Tesla portfolio. The thing that kills me about it is that I'm buying it at 800 billion fucking dollars. And so it's annoying to me because I'm like 800 billion to 8 trillion is a little bit harder in my brain, even though you're correct, versus 30 billion to 300 billion. And because I missed it when I had it at 100 billion, because I did have it at 100 billion and I missed that 8x. It always sucks a little bit to have to buy it here, which is a psychological thing I have to deal with. It's less about Tesla itself. It's only harder because it's never happened before, right? Yes. Yes. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, I was in a Tesla this weekend. I went to Vitaly's house and he was driving it. It was on autopilot, not even FSD. And I was like, oh my goodness. I'm like, I just can't wait to buy a Tesla. I mean, this is beautiful. This is the most amazing thing in the world. But in terms of the stock, you know, and, and they did it. They made the yeah. EV thing. They already went from zero to one. They did the thing. And now it's like you're asking them to do the next thing. And that's the thing where it's like, I don't know if they're, they're going to do it. But if they do, then I that's should fair. definitely have some in my portfolio. That's fair. No, that's super fair. And, and again, I, I'm not trying to convince you to buy or sell or anybody in, in the comments section. I just think this is a fascinating conversation. And you make a phenomenal partner to discuss these things. So I really appreciate you for coming on. Uh, you got a few minutes for Q&A, my friend? Let's I don't do want to hold you too long. Okay, perfect. So if you have a question, uh, type question in caps for me. So it's easy for me to pull out uh, only the best ones, which will be all of them. And hopefully we have time to go through uh, a few of them. First of all, I really want to highlight this. D Edwards with the 50 pound super chat. Thank you so much. Amit, when I see you, bro, I've been collecting a <laughs> beer fund. <laughs> or like a liquor fund so all drinks are on me my friend all right it. i got That's you great. i got you Amazing. covered all right let's go ahead with our uh first question and then Amit, uh, since you're the guest of honor you can uh, you can take these questions on uh question what's your opinion on new fintech stocks uh disrupting a massive market with large incumbent players in banking similarly to tesla versus traditional ice manufacturers my bet is sofi and nu how do you think about this so that's Tanner. Shout out to my guy. I host a podcast with him called SoFi Weekly. So Tanner, thanks for the question. I, I, out, um, I think he wants your take way more than mine. I agree. I think I think banking is meant to be disrupted. People hate going to branches. Gen Z, millennials, we, they don't want our money stuck in Bank of America or Chase. We want to have no fees, late fees, et cetera, overdrafts, all that stuff. And I think SoFi is primed to do that. I'm curious about you. Have you even kind of researched this space? Do you spend any time thinking about fintech or are you just like, I don't give a fuck. It's not that exciting. It's for me, it's just not because it is not that, that exciting, I'm, by the way. It is pretty boring banking. Yeah, it's a bank, right. Like the, the, what I've gone where I'm at with my investing journey is that I, I like real estate because I understand it. And it's uh, the earth has limited room. And as more people's uh, as more people appear on earth, the room will become more expensive. And thus, houses will go up in price. It's a super simple formula. And it's something that I it, like to me, that is like my where I put my money where I know it's going to be 100% safe. And then the Tesla piece, it's something that I'm very passionate about. And so for me to invest in something, it needs to be something that I'm personally passionate about. It has to resonate with me at a human level. Like the Palantir story, what you've done for me is that you've piqued my curiosity into what this means. Uh, for society long term from a data perspective right and i love data i'm an analyst i right. and then so i'm like okay huh i wonder if this is something that i'm actually going to interplay with at some point so you know i i think that could naturally guide my interest into that story but this stuff is like okay it's a bank cool all right i put money i take it out great yeah I'm not what fair. else <laughs> it's, fair. it's hard to get excited for a bank you it know? is i agree yeah. with you 
So, yeah. yeah. Uh, and I do own a little bit of Bitcoin. That's also true, but it's like, uh, you know, single digit percent. And uh, like, that's another thing that I'm fascinated about is like, uh, the use case for Bitcoin to me is actually legitimate because it's breaking the borders between countries where you can exchange value from one individual to another without having to worry about a middle person taking a cut or ruining that relationship. And in places where governments have crappy currencies, you know, I see this myself, you know, we have family in Iran and I have friends that uh, live in other places where the governments aren't the most stable. Things like Bitcoin provide true value like they actually have something where they can store their quote-unquote dollars and it won't fluctuate nearly as bad as the government's currency and like people are like well bitcoin is is not currency because it's volatile as crap i'm like have you looked at venezuela bro have you yeah. looked at iran have you looked yeah. at all these other countries on planet earth argentina <laughs> that's way worse right so that's that's where i think bitcoin has a lot of value um okay so that, that's my question to that uh answer to that thank you for the question uh breakfast pizza i met you need to read price of tomorrow great book about tech and exponential leaps have you read that book i will look it up right now i have not read that it's fantastic price of tomorrow. it's super good okay, it's Jeff super Booth. good right. yes sir it. add it to the list uh great recommendation breakfast thank you so much for the question and then here here's a quick question from him as well when are we going to get the emit interview round two in the fsd tesla when are you in austin bro are you, are you planning oh, on coming man. to austin anytime i have no plans but i think i saw a little bit of you and your brother-in-law in the uh yeah. FSD yeah that was great i loved it that was awesome yeah and if i ever do fsd tesla i'm gonna do it with you uh so if i'm ever in austin i will hit you up that would be awesome awesome please do I, I would love to do a collab there i think it'd be super fun um, Carlos Finance Junkie. Carlos, thank you so much for the $10 super chat, brother. Amit, I said it's hard to look that far out to say for sure, but if it's where the trajectory is headed, then I said I would trust FSD with my family. So uh, let me give some context here. I'm going to play with you, Carlos, a little bit because you put up 10 bucks here. Uh, if you watch <laughs> the clip, I said, Carlos, assume every best assumption you can assume. I was like, I want you to assume the best studies, the best everything, every government, blah, blah, blah. And he still couldn't get to the yes. And I think, you know, in in the heat of the moment, he was thinking of his, he has a, he has a two-year-old daughter. So he's, he's probably thinking like, do I want my two-year-old daughter in there? He's probably thinking from a more emotional perspective. But even then, I agree, Carlos is probably going to allow that to happen. He's a big Tesla bull. He's going to get FSD when it happens. But e that conversation to me was eye-opening because I was like, even the most emotionally invested people are thinking, man, this shit better be so damn good if my mom's mm -hmm. coming from the airport and I'm calling a Tesla over an Uber that I'm ready to trust our life in it. Because in Uber, even if it's less safer analytically, we've done it so much more that it's like logically it's okay to us. Whether that's right or wrong is irrelevant. It's just human behavior psychologically. But to get into that self-driverless car, it has to match the best assumptions. But I agree, if it gets to the best assumptions, as you were saying, Farzal, then I'm sure Carlos would use it because he's a big Tesla bull. You know what I think breaks that equation? And this is sort of why I'm so bullish on FSD is that, okay, Uber, so from my house to the airport, Uber is like 60 to 80 bucks, okay? Um, what if you could hail an FSD Tesla for 20 bucks for the same exact trip? I think at some point the cost equation is going to be so strong because mm -hmm. there's no driver and there's no maintenance. That, and then you'll have all this data, you know, this marketing or education from Tesla at this point that will say, here's why it's safer than a human. And then you'll have data from NHTSA proving this. And they'll say, the only reason why we'll approve this, it's because it's 10 times safer than a human. And then they're like, literally do the same trip for 25% uh, of what you would usually pay. I think that will... Do you think it's going to change uh, the psychological sort 100%. of overall conscious we have as a country or as a world in regards to driving? A hundred percent. And then in addition to that, in markets and in uh, places like in the U.S., there are how many places 
uh, how many cities, how many towns have been stripped out, like the local economies have been destroyed and people can't even afford to own a car or yeah. they can't afford the gas, right? A self-driving car would allow people to move around their towns and cities at a fraction of what they used to, which is going to be phenomenal for local economies. And at that point, it's like, okay, am I, am I going to be worried that the car is 10 times less likely to kill me or, or will I use this to survive? Because I literally can't afford to buy a car. That's and a good point. 50% of America lives in this. And that's that's what's crazy about it. It's a good you know? point. My car payment is 311 a month. If I can pay 100 to drive around in a thing that's 10 times safer, it's a, it's a good, the economic point is a good point. Because if it's cheaper, people won't care. If it's cheaper, it's cheaper, right? Right. Yeah. right. It's just an interesting thing there. And then Carlos, real quick as well. Carlos, you're just freaking throwing dollar bills at us, bro. What are you doing? Uh, also have to consider that by 2030, there may be so many autonomous vehicles. Human drivers may be seen as a danger. That's another good point. As That's well. a good point. That is yeah. a great point. Yeah. All right. Amit will invest in... I'm just kidding. Uh, question from Vasito. Uh, and then we'll do a couple more, Amit, if that's okay with your yeah, time. Yeah, I've got time. Don't worry. I'm good. Okay, cool. Uh, perfect. Question, do you think that the data Tesla is accumulating has value? If yes, how much value share? How do you think about this? Yeah, I mean, I think Dave Lee made a video about this a long time ago when he was comparing Tesla to Palantir. This is where I got the argument from. This is back in early 2022, where he was like, look, Palantir is not that exciting because they're just a picture and shovels play for the data. Tesla owns this shit. Like this is FSD is proprietary to them. And if they want to license it in the future or whatever, but they have the data advantage. So 1000% Tesla is accumulating data every time Farzad drives with his brother-in-law. Tesla gets smarter and smarter and smarter. And uh, that uh, that is very obvious to me. It's very logical. I, you know, someone like Gordon Johnson that doesn't see that is it's like it's amazing to me that that basic argument. You don't have to own the stock to realize like that's one plus one is two. Um, if yes, how much value? Well, then it just becomes a question of how monetizable is FSD. And if it's trillions, then tens of trillions of dollars. Yeah, yeah, I tend to agree with that answer. Thank you, Vasito. Uh, next one question. If FSD is proven to be safer than a human driver, do you see a future where you are not allowed to drive your own car similar to how they will ban the sale of new ICE cars? How do you think about this one? No, uh, you know, America, freedoms. I don't think we're ever going to get to the point where someone can't drive their own car. Um, so, yeah, that's probably not going to happen. But I do think a lot of people, no one likes driving. Like, I don't know anyone who loves driving. Like, sometimes you want to get some, some peace of mind, some fresh air. Yeah, okay. But most people hate you. I, I drove. I had a, I, I started my consulting firm in college. I consulted with people for public speaking and debate. I drove. I got a big client my senior year. I was driving five times a week, 120 miles a day while I was in college. And it was, and I was a new driver. I just got my license the summer before. So the idea that I didn't get into an accident driving like 20,000 miles in one year, if a, if a car could do that for me, it'd be well worth the 30,000 I pay for that car. And I pay like 20,000 for Honda Civic. Right. So yeah, I don't think they'll ban it, but, um, it'll just be more adoptable. Yeah. Two, two things of what you just said there. I think, I think the driver won't be outlawed, but there will be self-driving only lanes and there will be self-driving only roads wow. that will be at say double the speed limit of where they are today in some areas, like let's say in interstate roads. And that will naturally de-incentivize people from owning a car. And only people that really want to keep their cars as an enthusiast will keep their cars and leverage the existing infrastructure, which my bet is the government will over time not invest in and then driving will naturally become obsolete. So you think uh, the obsession and people have with like showing off their Audi or their Mercedes, you don't think that's going to exist in the next couple decades? People used to show off their horses. People used to show off their, you know, their 
chairs and whatever, you know, whatever object they had. And then people still do that, but it's a fractional percentage of the population versus what was 80% of the population, you know? So yeah. I think the materialistic aspect of being a human transitions from object as we evolve as a species and as technology sort of advances certain technologies. I think, I think yeah, in 50 years time, no one's gonna be like, look at how sick my self-driving car is. They're gonna wow. be like, look at how advanced the chip on my brain is. It's yeah. got one trillion, trillion, Terra poopers, I don't know what the fuck kind of, you know, unit of measurement they're going to be using for this cra crap, you know, but I think that's how it's going to evolve. And it's weird to wrap your head mind around that because when people listen to me say this, they're like, how, like, I can't, I will never give up control of my car. And my argument is, I don't think you will. I just think by the time we're all dead, people will not care. That yeah. is a unique take. I have not heard that before. I, I'm, I'm actually very happy I heard that because I agree with you. I, I don't, I've never cared about wearing yeah. a watch. None of I've been very less materialistic in my life. I wear the same. This shirt is from 2015 in high school. Uh, yes. So the idea that we don't have to care about our cars in 50 years, I 100% agree. And if that's the case, yeah, why would you yeah. need to buy that new Mercedes? We'll see. We'll see if uh, we're right or not. A uh, couple more questions. What challenges Tesla faces in Biden's era of presidency? How do you think about this one? Um, <laughs> there's so many jokes you can make on that. My, my, my big joke is like, well, does he even remember like Elon's, <laughs> you know, it's like, look, I, I, yeah, not to get too political about it, but I mean, I, I think Tesla's thrived. They've gotten a bunch of EV subsidies. That's great. Yeah. He didn't invite them to a, to a meeting or whatever, but like outside of that, I don't, I don't think the administration is going to have that much of an impact. I do think if we get a Trump presidency who like kind of doesn't believe in wind farms and solar, if he gets aggressive legislatively in terms of EV subsidies, that's bad. I don't think that'll happen because I think if anything, Elon can just pull up to the White House and be like, bro, like, you know what we're doing. Like, don't get don't 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 F this up. I think I have faith in Elon. He would figure that out. So I, I think Tesla's administration agnostic. I do think you want an administration that somewhat believes in climate change and EV adoption. Uh, and hopefully the, uh, the administrations in the future are fine with that. Yeah, I my take here is I, I would say that, the you know, we can setting my politics aside and all the, you know, critical things I could say about whatever president we've had in office, because my personal take is I feel like the last few presidents we've had are, haven't just been, I don't know, I think we can do way better as a country. I think the Biden administration has been massively net positive to the Tesla story because of what you said, the IRA, the the bill where with the EV tax credit. So, you know, whatever, whatever um, criticism I, I have of Biden and his presidency, I think that his administration has really ushered in a new era of electric vehicles in the United States and 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 localization of manufacturing, and they should be heavily applauded uh, for that specific thing. Uh, so you know, I think I think that's a great thing. Uh, as far as Biden specifically, you know, I'll let you guys decide uh, whatever you want on that. So um, let's do a couple more, uh, and then uh, we'll wrap this sucker up. Amit, dude, how do you manage to speak so fast? So I did debate in high school, uh, and the debate team required you to speak at about 300 words a minute. Uh, so I get comments on YouTube all the time saying, yo, like, can you just slow down a little bit? I love your content, but you got to slow down. And in my head, I'm like, I'm just trying to get you in and out. I don't want you to, that's what she said. I don't want you to be here for like 20 minutes. I want you to be here for five minutes and then you can leave and enjoy your life. Uh, so I've tried to adjust <laughs> this. Like, so I watched me, Kevin, and he, he, he takes like seven seconds between every word. And I'm like, that's how he gets his fucking watch time up. Cause he spends so long <laughs> and he's good at communication. <laughs> so people watch. And I'm like, do I want to do that to people? It's like, well, I don't, I don't know if they trust me enough to, to spend that long just slowing down my words. So I try to get them in and out. Uh, so yeah, that's how that's how I speak so fast. It was a debate. 
Awesome. And then uh, we'll do one last one real quick. I do want to give a shout out. Shane, thank you so much for the $2 super chat. The car is just Tesla's first product. 10 trillion LFG, not financial advice. NFA, I should have added my own letters there. All right, uh, last question. This one's a very interesting one. Firstly, what did you have for lunch? Admit, and I'll share mine too. And second, Palantir, the stock versus the business. Do you ever see the stock price never truly reflected based on the actual business? Uh, ref the optics. Reference and the optics and government. Reference the optics and the government. Yeah, so I'll go first with my lunch and I'll let Amit close this out. I uh, actually had two pieces of uh, Killer Mike's bread or something, Killer Dave's. It's like high protein bread, two, two pieces, and I had three eggs with some high protein chicken sausage, some spinach, and uh, a little bit Who of... made you this lunch? My wife. Okay, I was like, <laughs> I was like this, you didn't cook this up on your own. This producer wife. I can. I can. I totally can. But I, I was in the middle of making a video for tomorrow. And she's like, babe, are you hungry? I'm like, yes. And then 10 minutes later, breakfast and lunch appears. So I'm like, great. I love that. Go for it, man. Uh, take us out here. Give us, your, give us your answer. And then we'll wrap this sucker up. Yeah, for lunch, I had some rice and some chicken from ShopRite barbecue chicken that I heated up and I ate that with the rice. So I had some rice and chicken. Uh, in terms of pound stock price and growth, I think the stock price will always reflect the business if the business grows. The stock price at seven, six, seven bucks, people could argue it was fairly valued. You know, I thought it was undervalued and I, I thought it was obvious, but unless we have ChatGPT and the AI moment, the stock might still be stuck at seven, eight bucks. So um, a company that had a lot of stock-based compensation, wasn't profitable, just recently got profitable, and they're making $4 million from operations. They have a lot to go in terms of actually becoming uh, healthily profitable. And then a company that uh, you know had some decent, I guess, lack of growth over the past year, you could argue that it should have only been a $7, $8 stock. I think now the momentum has changed, the market has changed, the premium we got in is well-deserved if by Q3 and Q4, not Q2, because Q2 is probably not going to go well, but Q3, Q4, we can execute. And the growth is there. We get to 30% CAGR over the next uh, five, 10 years. If that's the case, the stock price will reflect the company. And I'm more sure about this than I've ever been because every institutional investor in the world needs AI exposure. It's why NVIDIA has not fallen back to 250 because they realize there's a monopoly in AI. There's a couple big players. If that's the same in the enterprise uh, uh, spend for AI space, there's only going to be a couple players. There's going to be five to 10 companies. And if Pounder is one of them, the stock price will absolutely reflect the company, if not be more than what the company's worth. And that'll be a fun day for shareholders over the next 10 years. Awesome, man. Amit, thank you so much, brother. This was such an enjoyable conversation. Again, uh, I think what you're doing is super impressive. You're a very impressive individual. I'm very inspired by your work ethic and the content that you make. You're welcome back anytime, man. And thank you so much for uh, coming on with me and having a chat. Any parting words for, uh, for the crowd? Yeah, no, thank you, Farzad. I appreciate it. It's been really fun getting to know you over the past couple of uh, couple of well, it feels like years, but really just months since we've known each other. And, you know, I, I've always said, like, the way you're, you're growing on Twitter, the community that you're building, it's so healthy, it's so real, it's so authentic. And, you know, this is the one thing I guess I'll say is, like, I, I think I've been around enough creators to know which ones are creating communities that are fueled by money and fueled by uh, taking advantage of an audience. And that's the one thing I never wanted to do as a creator because I'm so fucking humble that, what, 500 people are here spending their time with us. That means the world to it's me. Crazy. And I always saw that gratitude you had. You never took it for granted, uh, even in the early days when you were just building the channel at 10, 20K, and now you're just blowing up. And so I really appreciate that about you. I think you're going to continue to remain humble as you grow. Um, and that's just really important to me that people actually value the audience that they have. So I'm super happy for you. I'm super happy you give me a platform and happy to grow together over the next 10 years covering some of the most innovative companies in the world.
Let's do it, man. Thank you so much, brother, for the kind words. Uh, make sure you check out Amit's channel. You can find it on YouTube. We'll have uh, links for that in the comments section. It's It's been blasted by the mods here in the live comments as well. So make sure you check it out. We'll have it in the description as well. And thank you all so much for tagging with us today. Thank you, mods, for the excellent work that you always do in the comment section. Our community, always so respectful and such fruitful conversation in the comment section. And last but not least, Amit. Make sure you check out his channel on YouTube and also Adia.io, uh, an awesome website where you you can find your favorite audio content super easy to search make sure you check it out Amit, thank you brother and we'll see you on the next one take it easy everybody thank bye you bye. for that appreciate it guys you got bye it bye